Happy Easter. What a wonderful day. This morning when I got up and I looked out and there was whiteout in my window, I, I thought just for a moment, I wonder what Jesus would have done if when the stone was rolled away, he looks out and there was Syracuse snow, if maybe he would have taken his clothes with him. Uh, I have no idea, just guessing here, but that thought crossed my mind. And so for all of you who decided today to join us online rather than coming, we do welcome you as well. Today I want to talk to you for a few minutes about a conversation with a risen Jesus. Conversation with a risen Jesus. For the past three weeks we've had a theme that I have been speaking about, and that theme has been this is about us. It's difficult for us to go through this season and look at everything that's taken place and recognize that this is what Jesus has done for us. For those of you that may be guests today and you're wondering why is it that we as a congregation celebrate so much when we sing, maybe you come from a background that's much quieter, I want you to know the reason we celebrate is because Jesus did this for us, and we have a reason to celebrate today. Years ago, General Wellington commanded the victorious forces that fought against Napoleon, and as news of that began to spread, the way that they spread the message was that people would stand on high points and with flags and messages share the message of what was taking place until it got all the way back to the homeland. The story was told that when the battle was over and the messages were being sent, the message said this, Wellington defeated Napoleon at Waterloo. Somewhere in the middle of sending the message, there was a fog that began to roll in between two of the people that were giving the message. And one of them that received the message, the only thing they could see before the fog came in was Wellington defeated. And so they turned and passed that message on, and it went on all the way back to the homeland. And it wasn't until the fog lifted that the rest of the message came through, and those that were so discouraged by hearing of a defeat it turned around and rejoiced because it ultimately was victory. I believe that that probably is a good description of the way that we approached the difference of last Sunday when we talked about the seven words of Jesus on the cross when He was dying versus the way that we approach victorious resurrection Sunday when He is out of the grave. It seemed as if last Sunday we walked out of here and the final words of Jesus were, it is finished, and He commits His spirit into the Father's hands and then He dies. And, and we walk out of here knowing He did that for us for our salvation but it wasn't until the fog clears on resurrection morning and the tomb is empty that we begin to celebrate because we've seen the rest of the story and He is the victor. I would like to share with you this morning a story that is found in the Scripture in Luke chapter 24 and would encourage you to turn in your Bibles if you have them, whether they are the book or the electronics, and we will have it posted for you so that you can follow along if you would like. Beginning with verse 13, it says this, now the same day two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus Himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing Him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked Him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asks. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all of the people. The chief priests and the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped 
that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen vision of angels who said, he's alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all of the prophets that have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. We have listed for us in Scripture today one of the most vivid and insightful accounts of the Lord's appearance after His resurrection. Luke is the only one of the four gospel writers to include this story, but the story reveals to us something about who we are, something about how Jesus desires to open people's eyes, and about how we can come to know Him. This journey that we read about in Scripture... This road to Emmaus is both literal and spiritual as a journey that each of us must take because it outlines the way that each of us can come to know the Lord and how He opens up our eyes and that we can give witness to His experience. Heavenly Father, I pray that over these next few moments you would now begin to allow the power of this moment, the power of Your resurrection to touch our hearts. And that, Lord, that you would begin to reveal to people as you open up their eyes a pathway by which they can come to meet Jesus as Savior and Lord. And I pray this in your holy and powerful name. Amen. How many of you have ever heard the saying, it all comes down to this? Any of you ever heard that? Most of you have. It all comes down to this. Three seconds left in the fourth quarter. The home team is down by two. The coach calls a timeout. He sends out his star field goal kicker onto the field to attempt a field goal. The teams take their position. The referee puts the ball down. It is snapped. The kick is up, and it is good. And half the celebration, half the stadium erupts in celebration, and the other half lowers their head and leaves in defeat. Or it all comes down to this. You've been carrying around an engagement ring in your pocket for weeks, and you've been waiting for this moment. You know that you want to marry her, and you know that you can't wait to spend your life with her and that you love her so very much, and so you have it all planned out, a special night, special event, special restaurant, the perfect song that is your song, and you know it's going to sway her mood. You have her favorite flowers. You have stood in front of the mirror and practiced this speech. You are all ready, and the moment arrives, and you get down on one knee, and you look her in the eyes, and you ask her if she will marry you. And now it's up to her. But this is the moment. Or maybe your moment's a little different. Maybe it all comes down to this for you. You haven't been feeling well for a while. The doctor's been trying to figure out what's been going on with you. They've run test after test, and the doctor calls and tells you that she wants to deliver this news to you in person. So you were waiting in the office, and you're sitting there, and you feel like your life is hanging in the balance. Those 
test results will be a major turning point in your life. It all comes down to this. That phrase to us is a defining moment. It brings our minds to a place where we know that we are at a critical stage of life, a momentous or important decision or occasion. It's the words that you've been waiting for. And today I want to tell you on this Resurrection Sunday, it all comes down to this. This is the moment. We celebrate the resurrection of the dead of Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that there are moments in our life when we can celebrate because of what he does, but it all comes down to this. And in this story, there was an eye-opening moment for those that were walking with the Lord following his resurrection as they were walking along with him. And I'm praying today that that same eye-opening moment for them would take place for you. William Willimon said this, Easter is not about the return of the robin in the spring or crocuses or butterflies coming out of a cocoon. It's about a body that somehow got loose. The gospel accounts strain to describe what happened, but don't make any mistake about it. They are trying to describe something that is unearthly. Death working backwards. So on this Sunday, this Resurrection Sunday, a group of women got up early and went to Jesus' grave, and this is a picture of what they found when they got there. The stone was rolled away. It was the moment that changed everything because Jesus was not there. And then they hear this announcement from the angel in Matthew 28, 5. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid. Now, I, I like those words because if I'm going to a cemetery to honor somebody and their grave is open, I'm going to be afraid. So the angel begins to address that right away. Do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus. He was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. This is a history-reversing moment because Jesus kicked death into reverse. The headlines that morning were not, look what death did to Jesus. The headlines that morning was, look what Jesus did to death. It was a shocking and defining moment, but it was just the first of many moments that took place throughout that day. We have a fair amount of information about what that day was like after Jesus rose from the dead. We know in the evening he was with his disciples, but that afternoon, Luke 2 tells us of an interesting encounter that I would like to just look at with you for a moment. We know that it was about a seven-mile walk between Jerusalem and Emmaus. I don't know about you or how fast you walk, but chances are in seven miles you can get into a pretty good discussion with somebody that you're walking with. And these two men were deep in conversation as to what was happening. We know that they were walking in a shocked and stunned condition. They were walking along trying to make sense of everything that had happened to them. And verse 15 tells us that as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. Jesus, who just a little while ago had blown himself out of the tomb, is the resurrected Christ. And here is what we can discern from this passage. Now, I don't know about you, but some of you probably have watched some Easter stories and TV this week. 
as I was watching some of the biblical accounts of Jesus, one of the things that I noticed was in every scene I saw, Jesus was glowing. Did you notice that? He had this little glow about him, or he looked like a ghost. But I want you to know that in the Scripture, he wasn't glowing. He didn't look like a ghost. He did not have a halo around his head as he was walking. He didn't even have bandages on, no bandage. He was just walking along. The scars on his body either were covered by his clothing or they must not have been very noticeable. He looked like a normal man walking on the road, and although they should have recognized him, the Scripture says they were kept from recognizing him. And all of this happened because God was going to set up something that for you and me as well as for these men was going to be an eye-opening moment. Now, I look at this, and because I'm a little sarcastic in the way I think, and some of you speak sarcasm well, I know you, I look at Scripture, and there's this humorous side to this as it relates to the way I look at it. And, and so in this moment, Jesus is coming walking up. He recognizes the mood of these men, understands they're discouraged, and in verse 17, he basically walks up and says, hi, guys, what's going on? What are you talking about? Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever been involved in a very serious conversation, chances are you did not want to be interrupted. And if it was a serious conversation that wasn't necessarily in the best mood, the last thing you want is some joyful individual jumping right in the middle of your conversation. And here comes Jesus. Hey, guys, what are you talking about? And the Scripture says they literally stopped. They just stopped, and they hung their heads down. And I wonder if they didn't hang their heads down in frustration with Jesus, or maybe it was because of the mood that they were in in that moment, but their response to Jesus was this incredulous attitude of like, who are you and where have you been? Are you the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know everything that's been happening the last few days? And Jesus, again, in my unique way of thinking, goes, what things? What are you talking about? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Here's what we're talking about. And I find it really fascinating that in this moment they are talking to Jesus about Jesus and they don't even know it. This was probably a very interesting conversation from Jesus' perspective because they go on to describe that since apparently you were the only person in the area that does not know what has gone on, let us tell you about it. And they said, so there was this guy by the name of Jesus. He was powerful. In fact, the thing that we admired the most about him is it didn't matter where he went or what situation he was in. He never was thrown off guard. He always knew what to say. And in the middle of this, you get this sense that Jesus is playing with him and he's going, Wow, sounds like a great guy. Love to meet him sometime. What else can you tell me about him? And they said, you know, the thing that really upsets us is that he was so hated by the chief priests and the teachers and the elders that they sentenced him and they crucified him and they killed him. And we are just here walking on this road, walking back home after this huge disappointment, and we are in stunned disbelief at everything that has happened. We thought He was going to be our Savior. We thought He was the Messiah. We thought that He was the one that was going to come and free us. And then He dies, and all of our hopes and dreams have been crushed. They're gone. We are... We are just so disappointed. But then, 
We wake up this morning and the women that we know came to run to tell us and there are rumors that are floating around that Jesus rose from the dead. And so now we're walking home and, sir, we don't even know what to believe. We are just in stunned belief. And at this point, Jesus engages them in conversation. He recognizes that their world has been rocked and he begins to step in and he says to them in verse 26, You need to know that this is all part of God's script. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter His glory? In other words, do you not know the Scriptures? They had forgotten somewhere along the line that all of this had been prophesied and that before the victory would come what seemed like the defeat. And then in verse 27 it says this, And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, Moses would be the first five books of the Old Testament, And the prophets would basically be the remaining part of the Old Testament. He, he being Jesus, explained to them what was said in the Scriptures concerning himself. In other words, he goes, let me tell you the story from my perspective. So beginning in the Old Testament, Jesus walks these men through the Jewish Scriptures and explains to them everything about how prophecy was to be fulfilled. And they still don't know they're talking to the risen Jesus. I want you to know something. Every encounter that you have with Jesus will always start with Him being truthful with you. He'll be truthful with you about your life. He'll be truthful with you about your spiritual condition, but it always starts there. And so I'm not surprised at all that on the pathway to talk about His victory, He starts with the truth of Scripture. And He said, since it started with Moses, he began to quote to them out of Deuteronomy 18, 15, I would imagine, as he starts this discussion, and he says to them, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren, and you must listen to me. In other words, let me tell you about the prophecies that have led us to this day and led me to this conversation with you. And then you have to imagine that in this conversation, he goes on to speak about some of the other prophets. I'm sure that he came to Zechariah who prophesied 500 years before Jesus would be betrayed and crucified and rose again. But Zechariah, in stunning detail, describes the betrayal by Judas for 30 pieces of silver. In fact, in Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13, 500 years before all this took place, it said, so they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter the handsome price at which they priced me. In other words, Jesus is telling them, this was the value that my betrayal was worth. This is how much I was worth. And so I took the 30 pieces of silver and I threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. And you look at this and go, who is Jesus talking about and what is he talking about during this particular time? We looking back on this know that when Judas betrayed Jesus the night before he was crucified, the religious leaders paid him 30 pieces of silver. In Matthew 26, it says, Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests, and he asked them, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? What is this going to do for me? And they counted out 30 pieces of silver. And after participating in his betrayal, Judas is overcome with grief and remorse and regret at what he has done. And in Matthew chapter 27, it says this is what happens in verses 3 through 8. When Judas, 
who had betrayed him saw that Jesus was condemned. Now, I want to stop here just for a moment. Judas knew that he was going to betray Jesus, but this indicates to us that he really didn't know what they were going to do to him. But suddenly, after Jesus is condemned to die, Judas begins to wonder, what have I done? I didn't expect this, and now I'm, I'm feeling as I, I should never have done that. And it said, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. And their response is, what is that to us? He said, that's your responsibility. So Judas, in the middle of this, throws the money into the temple, and he left. And then he went away, and he hanged himself. And the chief priests pick up this coins that there was there, and they said, it's against the law to put this into the treasury because it's blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy a potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. And that is why it's been called the field of blood to this day. Those 30 pieces of silver thrown back into the temple of the Lord and the local religious leaders who had taken this money illegally from the treasury before now suddenly grow a conscience and say, well, we can't put this back. And so they buy a potter's field. So Zechariah prophesied in amazing detail 500 years before exactly what was going to happen. And as Jesus is walking with these men in their moment of disappointment, maybe he quoted from Psalm, which was written a thousand years before Jesus died and hundreds of years before crucifixion was ever even invented. And in Psalm, you see a detailed description of what played out in Psalm 22, 16 through 18. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count my bones. People stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and they cast lots for my clothing. This is exactly what had happened two days before on Friday. And it is described in detail a thousand years before the event ever took place. So Jesus is probably reminding these men of this prophecy as they're walking along. I can't imagine that conversation on that road without thinking that Jesus probably talked to them about Isaiah 53 as well. When he said, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought peace was upon him. And by his wounds or by his stripes, we are healed I can't imagine Jesus not addressing this with them as they're walking along. And the Jews had probably interpreted this as the suffering of the whole nation of Israel. And Jesus was saying, I need you to relook at this. It was not Israel I was talking about. It's me. I did this for you because this is all about you. You see, God cannot be good if he's not a God of justice. And we have failed him. We have given way to evil. We have followed our own way and have ignored him. And the only way that God could bring peace from us to him was through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us. And so Jesus unjustly bore the sorrow for all of our sin and punishment so that we 
could out of grace receive peace with God. And Jesus on the road as he's talking to these men tells them the story. And he wants them to understand there is nothing like this in any religious system on earth. And Jesus likely landed on this verse in the conversation on his road to Emmaus. And then Jesus looks at these men. He says, don't you see that this had to happen for there to be a way of forgiveness for you? We had to get beyond the Old Testament system of sacrificing lambs and goats and birds and There had to be one perfect sacrifice. Don't you see how it fits all through history? As Jesus is having a conversation with them, the risen Jesus, and they don't even know it. it. I doubt that Jesus stopped at verse 5. I would imagine that he also went all the way to verse 11 of Isaiah 53 when he told them, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life And be satisfied. I want you to understand this is the prophecy of the resurrection that he was living in in that very moment. After his suffering, he sees the light of life. I'm so glad today we are living in the light of his life today. Hallelujah. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Jesus is still doing that today. If you don't know him today, I want you to know that you're in the right place at the right time because in just a few moments, you're going to be given an opportunity to have an eye-opening experience with the risen Savior. And as Jesus was walking with those men, I'm sure he couldn't resist going to Psalm 16:9. It was a verse he quoted often. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave. Jesus knew that what had taken place had been prophesied, and he was living in that prophecy. And these discouraged, depressed men wondering what had happened, Jesus was speaking to them and saying, I need you to lift up your heads. I need you to look around because... I was not abandoned in the grave, and there is now hope. I also wonder at this point what the difference was in the mood between those men and Jesus. Jesus is living on the resurrection side of his sacrifice. These men were living in the disappointment side of their own mood, and he began to unpack the story to them, and I'm certain that at some point his enthusiasm began to make them wonder, who is this guy, and why is he so happy? And how does he know Scripture so well? And so we start the story in verse 27. It said, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the Scriptures concerning himself. It turns out that by the time Jesus was done unpacking all of this, that they had reached their destination. And as the day is coming to a close, Luke tells us that Jesus acted like he was just going to keep on walking. But they prevailed upon him. These men said, listen, it's getting late in the day. Why don't you just come home with us? Come come and stay at our house. We've walked a long time. Frankly, you're really an interesting individual, and we would love to get to know a little bit more about you. Why don't you come and eat with us? And so Jesus acts like he gets talked in to going to their house, and he accepts their invitation. I want you to know something. Jesus still 
only comes into a life through an invitation. It will require you making an invitation to Him for Him to come into your life. It doesn't matter how long you've attended church. It doesn't matter how well and how beautiful you look today in your Easter clothes. The only thing that matters is have you invited Him into your life? You see, Jesus isn't our plaything. He is not our puppet. He is not to be consumed and discarded at our whim. He isn't a genie in a bottle that you rub when you're in need and you need something and then you try to put Him out of your life when He's done what you need. He isn't somebody that you displace in the priorities of your life just so that He can be convenient. He is Lord God Almighty and everything that you have in life bows to Him in the authority of His resurrecting power. And if you want an eye-opening moment, it must start with you being interested and pursuing Him. And inviting him because eye-opening moments with Jesus come when you invite him into your life. Maybe you're a skeptic today. In fact, maybe you're here because you were invited and you really didn't want to be here and you don't believe any of this. But what I have been praying for you and what the people of our church have been praying is that there might be in you in just this moment the slightest hint of an interest to investigate. Because if you will give Jesus a chance, he will come to your invitation. Worship team, if you'd please come. And so Jesus accepts their invitation. He goes into their homes, and he is sitting down to eat with them. And there's this remarkable verse that takes place, the 30th verse of Luke chapter 24. It says that when he was at the table with them, he took bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it. And he gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. The fascinating thing about this is that as a guest, he would not normally be serving. The hosts would do that. And I don't think it's lost on any of us that Luke uses this same language that he talks about on Friday during the the final time he's sitting there with his disciples as Jesus took bread and he broke it and he gave it to them. And he begins to describe to them that my body will be broken. He's prophesying at that point. My body will be broken for you. The blood that I will shed for you is the new covenant. It's the new way that you can get to God through me. No more sacrifices. And then in that moment as he's sitting in the house, he asks the host, do you mind if I serve the bread? And he takes it. There's something about Jesus when he feeds us that our eyes are opened. Today I want to proclaim to you a Jesus that wants, he wants to heal you. He wants to feed you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to indwell you. He wants a relationship with you. And it all comes down to this. It all comes down to this. Will you invite him into your home?